Great to be here. Um, uh, it's good to be in New England where America actually runs on Dunkin' Donuts. Amen? <laughs> I'm, I'm a coffee snob, but there's something about drinking Dunkin' Donuts with a glazed stick. Now, let me date myself. A glazed cruller, which they, which they outlawed and exiled which to, you know, to their demise. But nevertheless, the combination is distinctly New England. And so we picked one up this morning on the way here, and we're celebrating and worshiping, worshiping on our way here. So it's good to be back here. Uh, we lived here for about six years and uh, just love. We tried to plant a church here, um, but uh, the Lord wouldn't let us. We put a plan together. We were thinking about planting in Alston Brighton. In fact, uh, I think the seed of my desire to plant a church in New England, because I thought I was going to die in the Middle East or Southeast Asia among an unreached people group. It's a good thing that God knows what he's doing when I don't, right? Um, I was down, uh, downtown, I think we were in Cambridge, at Christ the King Presbyterian Church, and uh, I turned to my friend who's here this morning, Stephen Whitmer, uh, uh, one of my best friends, a great pastor, writer, and uh, I turned to him and I said, hey man, what would you think about planting a church downtown together? And, uh, and so the seed for church planting was birthed in my heart right here in the, in the, in the, in the Boston area, and so I'm so grateful for many of you that have have planted churches, are going to plant churches, and are contending uh, for the gospel uh, in a part of the country that so desperately needs Jesus. So thanks for letting me be here, <laughs> um, and thank you for what you're doing um, in New England. We, uh, we also uh, spent some time last night with some friends in the South End, and uh, they own Be Good. Have you eaten at Be Good? Be Good? Be Good? So, so eat at Be Good for Christ now, all right? Um, because these, these dear, this dear couple, um, they, are, they are, have lots of spiritual questions. They're not Christians. They have Catholic background, and we just had a great time talking about life and be good. And, and, and we didn't actually eat be good, unfortunately. We ate some great pizza. But, uh, um, and, uh, you know, just it was so awesome to enter in and uh, love your city, eat your food, and hang with some people who desperately need Jesus. And we had some great gospel conversation last night. So I'm warmed up. And I'm so glad to be here with you. Um, we're going to do three messages um, over the day. Well, there'll, there'll be more than that, but uh, there'll be three main messages that I'm giving. And uh, they all hang together, okay? Um, so they, they, they all kind of fit together uh, in order to address this premise that uh, in America, evangelism has become unbelievable, okay? That people have, Christians and non-Christians, have, become to find, have come to find that uh, evangelism is not a very convincing endeavor. Um, and, and so I think we need to, to rethink uh, the whole evangelistic task. So we're going to try to do that in three messages. And uh, that's kind of bold. But I hope that as we do that, you'll be encouraged, you'll be equipped. Um, so three ways we're going to do that. First, we want to address the defeaters in evangelism. When you are prompted with an opportunity to share the gospel with someone, often a defeater will rise in your heart or in your intellect, and you'll think, think to yourself, I can't do this, or I won't do this. And so there's, it defeats the evangelism on the spot, right? Um, now, I find, it, I find it perplexing that 25 years into the missional church, published by Daryl Guter, edited by him, 25 years into the missional church movement in America, that evangelism is still on the decline, that should tell us something about the missional church. Only recently are we starting to talk about evangelism at conferences like Exponential and Together for the Gospel and things like that. So why the decline in evangelism? 
What, what's going on motivationally in us, the defeaters? Number two, um, re-evangelization. What are church planters and pastors and leaders and small group leaders and missional community leaders, what are we to do about it? How do we address the decline in evangelism? Uh, the, the, the recent survey pointed out that um, people, uh, millenni- millennials are sharing their faith a little bit more, uh, like once a year. Um, so, you know, that's a win than they were before. Um, but uh, after that, you know, kind of late 20s to mid-50s, there's been a sharp decline in evangelism. Um, why? So how do we address it? Defeaters, re-evangelization. How do we engage in re-evangelization? How, um, what do we need to do with the message of the gospel to re-evangelize? And then third, um, how do we then practically share a believable gospel? Because a lot of people are finding it utterly unbelievable. So how then do we engage in winsome, culturally discerning, uh, personally warm, truth-telling evangelism? How do we do it? So really we're looking at three things, kind of the whole evangelistic picture. We're looking at our motivations, defeaters. We're looking at the message, re-evangelization. And we're looking at our methods, which is what I'll call gospel metaphors. Okay? So just to lay the table a little bit um, before we move into this first message on unbelievable evangelism. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, that. Just <laughs> thank you for evangelizing us through that worship as we we considered uh, the remarkable Savior that we have encountered. And uh, I pray, uh, Holy Spirit, that I would follow you and turn with you, and that we would shift with you as we listen, in order to receive the Word implanted, which is able to save our souls, to to keep us in the love of God. And uh, we ask this in Jesus' name, Amen. So let's think about the task or the problem of unbelievable evangelism in two ways. Who's doing it and why? Okay? Who's engaged in unbelievable evangelism? Well, Christians are engaged in unbelievable evangelism. So let's, let's think about uh, Christians. Uh, growing up, I grew up in Texas, uh, the Bible Belt. Uh, we now live in the hole in the buckle of the Bible Belt in Austin, uh, but, but, but we were in the religious south, if you will, uh, growing up. And so uh, I came to Christ when I was six and a half and just overcome that the God of the universe would want to have anything to do with me and uh, begin to grow in my faith. And as I grew up, I, I began to uh, feel this pressure to evangelize. And, and I, I, this evangelistic pressure, it was as if this dark cloud, this ominous cloud followed me wherever I went. And if, if I kind of chickened out and didn't share the gospel with someone, then lightning would strike in the form of guilt. It would travel down my spine. And, you know, and if I was on a plane and I didn't evangelize the person next to me, captive audience, well, then I was especially guilty, right? Pressure evangelism. And I, I don't know when that entered the atmosphere, but I, I find that it's not just a religious South thing, that it happens to Christians uh, in, in all kinds of cultures and subcultures. The idea that we are a sub-Christian if we aren't sharing the gospel with, with every person and every opportunity. Uh, my wife did Yellow Book Sales, which is, was the competitor to Yellow Pages. I don't know if it's still around or not when we were in New England. And uh, my, my wife is, is gregarious. She's outgoing. She's, she's, a, she's a light in the room. She's a magnet. You, know, she's, you would love to talk to her. Um, she's that kind of person that is engaging and friendly, right? 
And here she's going door to door, you know, yellow book sales, getting cussed out, getting run out of, the, run out of places. I'm like, this is my gregarious, fun-loving, gracious, light of the world wife. You know, why, why would you do that? Well, because they saw a pressure sale coming. You ever been on the other end of a pressure sale, a used car or a washing machine? And you, you know what you want to get, but they're pressuring you to get something else or get something more? It, it feels kind of gross, right? Now, imagine being a non-Christian on the other end of a pressure sale, a pressure evangelism. You feel gross. You feel like a project. And, and why is that? Maybe our evangelism is more based on our performance than it is based on loving people. Maybe we're just looking to check a spiritual box. Pressure evangelism. And, and when you're on the other side of that, you just kind of want to run away. You just kind of want to slam the door. You, do, you don't, it's not warm. It's not inviting. I wonder if the reason that pressure evangelism, which is, is, is around, is because we see people as a means to the ends of our worth instead of resting in Christ, who's our infinite worth. Could it be that we are leveraging the mission field to feel important? Maybe we do it like this, checklist evangelism. All right, check minus, didn't share the gospel. Be encouraged, right? Um, check, uh, you say Jesus' name at the workplace. All right, you get a little pat on the back, got a little check, right? Said Jesus, maybe even Jesus Christ, right? Come home feeling good, feeling like you did, you, you evangelized today, right? And then you get a check plus if you say what Jesus did, which is he died on the cross for your sins. Uh, your neighbor, I, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Check plus, right? Evangelism is done. <laughs> I said his, not only his name, but I said what he did on the first century. But come on, people in, in New England, what does that mean? The death of a Jewish man in the first century? What does that have to do with their lives? I wonder if evangelism is more about us than it is about them. I wonder if we're looking to perform and check a box instead of, instead of looking to love people into Christ. So there's a pressure evangelism. There is a checklist evangelism. And as a result, I think there's been a thoughtful reaction. And we're quieting down. We're quieting down in our evangelism because we don't want to be like that. We don't, we don't want to be the pressure sales evangelist, right? And so as a result, we compensate, overcompensate by quieting down. And so we think to ourselves, well, if I live a spiritual life, you know, and, and if, I, uh, if I have good character, if I work really hard at my job, incidentally, I want you to listen to these messages not only for yourself, but for your church, your small group. Your, what are they thinking when they go to the workplace? when they go into the neighborhood, as they engage with people. And, and maybe they're quieting down because they want to rectify the misperception of the gospel, that it's a sales pitch, right? I mean, we know Jesus better than that. It's not a sales pitch. It's not coercive. We're not, Jesus didn't use people to get his worth, right? Christians are so filled with worth in Christ, they don't need to use people. So we're, we're quieting down. We, we realize that the, the evangelism tactics of the 20th century, presentational, Evangelism, which is information-driven. It's answer-oriented. It's answer -oriented. Uh, You know, if you died tonight and you stood before God and he said, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? The, the, the question is wrong. The question is answer-oriented. Do you get the right answer? If you say, Jesus, you're in. If you say, Jesus died on the cross for your sins, you're really in. <laughs> right? Uh, answer-driven answer 
heaven-centric. The goal is heaven, not Christ. Now, good evangelism is Christ-centered. Christ is the goal. Christ is the treasure, not heaven. Right? So we're pushing back on, on modernistic, rationalistic 20th century evangelism, and we're quieting down. We don't want to be consumeristic. We don't want to be presentational. And so we fall into this kind of St. Francis uh, style of evangelism that, you know, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Sounds pretty good. Except for he never said it, and it's not true. <laughs> right? St. Francis was an evangelist, and he talked and preached about the gospel all the time. And listen, if we're just quieting down our cubicles and we've got nice character, if we're just, you know, very spiritually minded and we mow our lawns really nicely uh, for our neighbors, people are not going to look over and go, my goodness, there must be a holy God. I must be a sinner. I need to repent, put my faith in Jesus Christ for my forgiveness of sins and be accepted into his kingdom and enjoy his enduring acceptance and his righteousness. Probably not going to happen, right? People aren't going to look at our exemplary character, exemplary character and conclude the gospel, right? They aren't going to look at our social justice and conclude the gospel. It's impossible, right? Because the gospel is not character. The gospel is an announcement of good news. But the problem is that people haven't heard how the good news is actually good. They've just heard information. They've just heard how to escape and get to heaven. They haven't heard how the good news this heavenly announcement enters earth and enters their bad news, addresses their genuine fears, hopes, dreams, struggles. Why? Because evangelism is answer-oriented and heaven-centered. So we're, we're quieting down. But in quieting down and doing good deeds and having great character, we're muting the gospel. And when you mute the gospel, people don't hear it. And people don't repent and believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and get swept into his wonderful grace. So where has this unbelievable evangelism got us? It's got us to Unbeliever Nation. It's a book that's written by, um, I think it's Philip, uh, David, David Noyce. He's from around here. Uh, not Concord, Concord, right? Not, not, uh, not Peabody, Peabody, right? Uh, I, I, I know the culture a little bit, okay? Uh, so Dave, David has written this book, Unbeliever Nation. And he is a, a self-proclaimed secularist. He crunches all the numbers and says a conservative estimate would say that 15% of the American population are secularists. Okay, 15%. Now, if you're like me, that's like not helpful at all. But then he says 50 million people, and I'm like, whoa. 50 million people? 50, 50 million eternal souls in America are secularists? And he goes on to point out that that is more than charismatic Lutherans, Methodists, Episcopalians, Presbyterians, Mormons, and Muslims put together. And we're freaking, about, freaking out about Muslims and Mormons when the real challenge in the evangelistic task is secularism. People that have rejected belief in God. Anti-theists, right? He goes on to point out that only 1.6% of this 15% call themselves atheists and agnostics. Now, put your thinking cap on when you try to suss this out. So 1.6% of the 15% are saying that they're atheistic or agnostic. Well, where's the rest of them, about 40 million people? 
noise wants to call the secularists out of the closet, he says. In other words, there are about 40 million people in this country, and I'd love to see the demographics, a lot of them are here, that have said, I'm not religious, but I'm still trying to figure it out. I'm not identifying with a particular religious category, but I'm not sure, the whole kind of spiritual but not religious thing. 40 million people. Uh, and, and, and David Noyce and the, the Society for Secularism are evangelizing them. They're going after them. They've got books on it. They've got conferences on it. They've got data on it. They've got statistic on it, statistics on it. And he, he's, he, he says, you know, we just want secularists to have a fair hearing and culture. And that's, we, we should probably grant them that. We should grant them the dignity to believe what they want to believe. He, he even goes on to say... Um, that it's not about bashing religion, but defending rights to those who choose secularity. So what this reveals to us is that there is a massive mission field of people who are secularized but haven't made their mind up. And where are we? We're over here practicing unbelievable evangelism, which is probably why a lot of them left theism in the first place. It's a little speculative, but I'm sure that had something to do with it. From my anecdotal experience in Austin, if 76% of the people in the urban core of Austin don't believe in Jesus, is the, they don't believe in Jesus, they don't believe he's the son of God. Um, and as I talk to them, they, they find kind of church religiosity very off-putting, and they've kind of moved to Eastern atheism, kind of just kind of trying to find their way. Maybe you know some people like that. Maybe pressure sales and spiritual projects has led to their unbelief. I realize unbelief ultimately is a matter of theology, and it's about God's sovereign grace, but God chooses to use us in the meantime. That's why he points preachers, apostles, teachers, evangelists, the church, right, through which the manifold wisdom of God is on display so that people might search out and find him, Acts 6, 17. So we have a historical moment in our nation where there is, it's doubled over the last two years, or 10 years. The amount of religious nuns has doubled. There is this 40 million number of people that haven't been around before. And so how will we steward this historical cultural moment? How will we respond with project-oriented, pressure-driven evangelism? What will we do? So who's unbelievable? We are. Be encouraged this morning. (laughs) You're unbelievable. I'm unbelievable. Um, But we've got to stare it in the face. And listen, I mean, if you're a church planter or a missional leader or whatever, maybe you're a little, maybe you're like kind of past this and you're not doing any of this stuff, but I guarantee your people are. I guarantee they're caught. They don't know how to get past the defeaters. Well, let's look at those. What is defeating us? Uh, Evangelistic defeaters. Those beliefs that pop up in the moment of evangelism that disqualify or discredit are announcing of the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's think about that together. Can you think of any defeaters? I don't want to be preachy, right? I don't want to, I don't want to be preachy. You know, preachy evangelism is self-righteous. You stand up on a stage, you look down at other people in the superiority of your beliefs and of your morality, and you preach at people. Well, the last time I looked, the gospel wasn't about self-righteousness, it was about Christ's righteousness. And so it, it's humble and persuasive, but not preachy and self-righteous. A preachy, I don't want to be preachy. That's a really good reason not to share the gospel. A defeater. Can you guys think of any others? 
Other defeaters that come to mind for you or for your congregation kind of isolate or minimize evangelism in the moment? Don't know enough, not informed enough. Don't know my apologetics well enough. Don't know the Bible well enough. That's that's a good reason. Like you want to be able to have an answer for the hope that's within you, right? So it's a good defeater. They're going to say no. Okay. Uh, Fear of rejection, right? Uh, The awkwardness of the moment. Like, that's probably not a good reason. Come on, man up, right? Um, So what, right? Uh, But it is a defeater. Other good reasons. Can you think of other good defeaters? What about... I don't want to be intolerant, right? That's good. We should be, Christians should be respecters of religions, not bashers, not, not to the Westboro group, uh, godhatesislam.com, you know, uh, not picketing against people that have a different sexual orientation and, uh, and, and, and judging them with virulent kind of speech, right? Um, I don't want to be preachy. I don't want to be intolerant. I don't know enough. I don't want to be... Uh, impersonal, right? Like last time I checked, uh, Jesus said, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, right? So in other words, be personable, be warm, love people, communicate grace to people, right? So I don't want to be impersonal. That's a big one these days, isn't it? Is, anybody see the, the film Her? Uh, it's, it's about a, a guy who falls in love with the operating system. That's where we're going, it's going to be great. Um, everyone's looking for intimacy. Everyone's looking for personability. Have you ever noticed that uh, on Facebook or Twitter, we'll share some of the deepest things in our life? You ever notice that? You, you, man, I can't believe that person shared that. Then you get in a conversation with them in some social setting, and none of that stuff comes out. Right? They'll bear their soul of the world on social media, but in relationships, in real genuine space and time, there's walls. We value relationships so much that we don't want to risk kind of hurting people or offending people or going too deep and losing a friend. Impersonal. So I think what we, I think what we all need to do is to figure out what the defeaters are in our congregations. That small group leaders and missional community leaders and pastors need to be talking to their people and understanding the good reasons and the bad reasons why we don't share the gospel. And then we need to squeeze as much evangelistic wisdom out of each defeater. We need to become uh, culturally discerning. We need to listen to those uh, intellectual concerns those people have, uh, the heart concerns that people have, and to think it through so that we aren't just name-dropping Jesus, treating people like a project. So maybe in the remaining time that we have here, um, let's think about a few of these defeaters, drill down on them, and, and see if we can squeeze out some of that evangelistic wisdom. Let's take uh, impersonal. It takes years to develop a deep friendship in Boston, in New England, right? Like, I, I lived here six and a half years. Like, we don't have very many friends. Uh, I guess it could be a problem with me. Um, we can talk about that afterwards. Um, but we, we did have one relationship that we spent more time with uh, people that weren't Christians, and we had dinner with them last night. But, you know, by, by and large, we don't have a lot of friendships uh, coming back. It takes a long time for people in New England to trust you. Amen? People are concerned 
about personal relationships, privacy, security, uh, about being burned or betrayed. And uh, perhaps part of the problem is the difference between proselytizing and evangelism. I think if we're going to move forward in uh, announcing the gospel winsomely, we need to make this distinction. And uh, we can call on kind of the resident theologian of New England, the Pope, and, uh, and get some help here. The Pope makes a distinction between proselytizing and evangelism. He says proselytizing um, builds walls, but evangelism builds bridges. Proselytizing builds walls. Well, how does it build walls? Well, proselytizing is recruitment. It's recruiting people to your church. It's recruiting people to your cause. It's recruiting people to your political platform. It's recruiting people to your morality. This is proselytization. It's, it's heavy-handed recruitment, right? And, and uh, a lot of Christianity has been conflated with these things. Uh, moral superiority, political platforms, your view on the end times, uh, your, you know, things that are less than Jesus. And so we put these uh, stumbling blocks in front of the gospel. But Paul says that Christ alone should be the stumbling block. We need to get that stuff out of the way. Political platform, view of the revelation, all this stuff. Move it out of the way, and Jesus alone needs to be the stumbling block to people. As we talked to our friends last night, a lot of the things that they deal with are hang-ups from Catholicism, religi- religiosity, uh, kind of works-driven kind of relationship with God, um, these kind of things. So if we're going to get past the impersonal defeater, I think we make a distinction between proselytizing and evangelism. Proselytizing recruits to a cause. Evangelism loves a person in the Christ. One's a project, one's personal, right? And let's be honest, real evangelism is often a very long road. You know, I've had a lot of evangelism training over the years. You know, I did, um, was exposed to some of the EE stuff. Um, I was exposed to the, I was in Campus Crusade, you know, go through the four spiritual laws. Um, I, one time I went to this redemptive Bible study. We had to do 12 weeks. And, and I would walk away every time. I was like, I've got to memorize an outline to share the gospel? Like, I've got to take someone through a 12-week Bible study to share the gospel? Man, and I would just walk away discouraged. Like, surely it's easier than this. I mean, don't, not, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying don't, there's not going to be suffering. But, I mean, do I have to amass all this information uh, in order to, to, to evangelize? Uh, Really, evangelism is a much longer road than, you know, four steps, um, 12 weeks. I mean, you know this from people that you've been trying to share the gospel with for years. But a lot of times the the winning stories are like momentary converts, punctiliar conversion instead of process conversion. But you look at statistics, missiologists show us that punctiliar conversion only accounts for about 30% of conversions. That's on-the-spot conversion. It's a holdover from the revivalism when everybody knew what sin, Christ, faith, and God means. But now people hear totally different things. Moral teacher, energy force, you know, repentance is go to church, right? And so there's been a massive cultural shift in what people hear when we're communicating the gospel. So it's a much longer road, isn't it? You know, I just think of some people that in my life. Uh, Jerry, a neighbor who's a gay guy, um, uh, has, he and his partner, Eli, lived across the street five years, um, walked through him, shared, got to share the gospel with him probably two years in when he hit a crisis, and he thought his partner was leaving. He invited me over. He knew, he knew we had had a relationship, uh, been personable, been loving, 
you know, uh, spend a lot of time with him, chatting out in the Texas heat when I wanted to run into the air conditioning. Um, and uh, he, in a crisis, he called me. Because I'm a great person, no, because he felt the love of Christ. He knew that, that Christians are personable people. And so in a crisis, he called me in. I walked in, never had this situation before, sat down at the dinner table, and he told us he's, he's weeping because his partner has left. Man, what a privilege to be there as a Christian. What a privilege to be there. We talked and we prayed, prayed, prayed for him, prayed that he would turn to Christ for his intimacy instead of his partner. Evangelism is typically a long road. There are exceptions, but it's typically a long road. I think of Reed. It took two years before he came, became a Christian. He was, uh, he was a drug addict. Um, he uh, was HIV positive. And, and now he's a new creation in Christ Jesus. Because I walked the long road with him. It was really inconvenient. As a pastor, I had a lot of other things I could do, you know. But we continued to walk the long road of evangelism. Maybe I could sum it up like this. Um, personal evangelism is inefficient. Love is inefficient. Right? Uh, project evangelism is very efficient. Name drop Jesus. Tell him what he did for you in the first century. Check. Right? Feel good about yourself. Performance-based evangelism. But the long road of evangelism that's personal and warm and climbs into the mess of people's lives and ends up at their dinner table uh, lamenting the loss of their partner is very inefficient. Love is inefficient. Jesus walked the long road with a lot of people. The disciples worked a long road with a lot of people. Why? Because they loved their neighbor as themselves. Love is inefficient. So hopefully we squeeze some wisdom out of the impersonal defeater, that I can't share the gospel right now because it would be impersonal, and I, I, that person needs to be loved. They need to, to be served. They need to be known. And in fact, when you love, serve, and know someone, you begin to understand how the good news addresses the bad news in their life. You become discerning like Jesus was in many of his engagements in evangelism. John, um, uh, let's move to intolerance. I don't want to be intolerant. That's, that's big in New England, right? Uh, you don't want to be intolerant. Well, that's a great reason not to share the gospel. There's different religious viewpoints. There's a lot of secularity. And uh, so let's just tolerate everyone's beliefs. I think of uh, my conversation with Dave and Brian. I, I used to go to this bar downtown in Austin um, called The Gingerman. It's low-lit, leather-paneled, leather um, this long wooden bar, kind of a classy gentleman's bar, you know, with 100 beers on tap. We'd go down there, and we'd have conversation after conversation. And Dave was with me. Dave was a very thoughtful person, graduate of the University of Texas, um, a celloist. He's in a, a famous rock band. And um, just a really thoughtful person and uh, someone who liked good beer, so we really got along well. And, uh, and so we'd spend times in the gingerman kind of talking. Well, we, we were talking, and he asked me about Jesus in India and all this stuff. We had interesting conversations. And we came back in, and his friend, Brian, showed up. Now, I don't know Brian at all, Okay. So we're talking about the gospel, and it's getting really good, and we're getting into the depths of, you know, who Jesus is, and then Brian shows up, and Brian's listening, and Dave goes, hey, man, what do you think about this? And, and, and Brian says, well, what about the Muslims, man? He's like, you know, they, they strap bombs to their chest. They're, like, so serious about their faith. Like, are you saying they're, they're going to go to hell? Like, those guys are sincere. Oh, didn't learn about that one in seminary. 
right? Um, but what, what, what do you say? Uh, are, we, are Christians tolerant of different faiths, or are we intolerant of different faiths? And as I sat there and I thought, I was like, how should I respond? And I thought to myself, well, for all I know, he's Muslim. Or maybe he has some close family or friends that are Muslim. So how do I make the gospel believable to him? How do do I respond um, in the atmosphere of intolerance? Uh, And one of the things that I did is is make a distinction between two different types of tolerance. D.A. Carson's written a book called The Intolerance of Tolerance. And uh, there's two forms of tolerance, okay? There's, there's uh, the um, classical tolerance, which says that every belief has a right to exist, okay? Uh, every belief has a right to exist. The different religions, different philosophies of life, they should all be acknowledged and they should all have a right to exist. We should grant people the dignity of believing whatever they want to believe and not force them to believe something else. So that's classical tolerance. Now, let's think about Jesus. Did Jesus practice classical tolerance? Well, I find it really insightful that Jesus never went on a campaign against Hellenistic philosophy. He didn't try to take down imperial um, Caesar worship. In fact, when he was given an opportunity, uh, you, know, you know, with taxes and Caesar, he said, render to God with God and Caesar with Caesar. He actually tolerated Caesar, who actually called people to worship him. Right? There's the cult of Caesar. Uh, the, this, uh, there are mystery religions that are around in the first century. I, I don't see Jesus bashing mystery religions. Um, I don't see him, uh, you know, wow. So Jesus didn't take it on the Greeks. He's not taking on the mystery religions. He's not taking on, uh, you know, the whole empire's Roman, you know, worship of Caesar. Um, he's, he, doesn't, he doesn't have campaigns against all these. He's incredibly tolerant. Think about redemptive history. I mean, gosh, God is tolerant incredibly tolerant with all of the different beliefs and systems and ways to rebel against God. I mean, the kingdom of God is incredibly tolerant. And there are occasional episodes when God will bring his judgment on people. But by and far, God has tolerated, Christ has tolerated a lot of beliefs. He's given people the dignity to believe what they want to believe. That's classical tolerance. What about the new tolerance? So if classical tolerance says... um, Every belief has a right to exist. Uh, the new tolerance says every belief is equally valid. It's equally true. Well, that's not what Jesus practiced. Jesus was exclusive because he loved people. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Right? We know that Bible verse. I am the way, the truth, the life. Exclusive claims of Jesus. So Jesus was classically tolerant, but he wasn't de novo tolerant. He wasn't the new tolerance. Right. So when I have a conversation with Brian and we're talking about that and we begin to talk about tolerance, I say, well, what do you, what do you mean by tolerance? Aren't you, aren't you tolerant? What do you mean by tolerance? And I begin to make the distinction between classical tolerance and new tolerance. And I find that, that often that sparks a lot of better, clear gospel conversation and that people appreciate the, the respect of different religions and giving people the dignity of their own beliefs. Think of uh, Scott. Scott, um, executive producer of a TV station in Austin. Um, he's from New England and uh, a very thoughtful person. Uh, sharp guy, went to an Ivy League school. 
uh, came to Austin, started a new life, became an executive producer of KVU. Scott um, started coming around because of a friend in the church, got to meet him. He came on Sundays and uh, explored the claims of Christ with us, was, was seeking um, some, some answers, uh, really appreciated the community. And he, he became, we'd have lots of conversations uh, after lunch, you know, at restaurants, talking about pluralism and other beliefs and how we should grant them the dignity belief, but that Jesus uh, actually practiced persuasive tolerance, not just classical tolerance, that he, he loved people to persuade them, loved them enough to persuade them of what's true, but he didn't do it in a bigoted, self-righteous way. And so we had lots of great conversations over the years. Uh, he got cancer, and uh, I remember visiting him in the hospital, and they had to cut off his entire nose. So you could look right into his face and see, like, the inside of his skull. What a privilege to be there. What a privilege to be there in that time. We got to, to pray for him and encourage him, and, and um, that was probably about a year into our relationship. He'd come over for dinner, you know, we'd talk. We'd love him being around our kids because he was just such a thoughtful person, and he actually adopted stray people. Uh, he would have different people living with him that were um, drug addicts, and would care for them, more compassionate than a lot of Christians I know. And at times I felt like more compassionate than me, you know, just uh, looking at him and seeing his exemplary compassion, his thoughtfulness. And, uh, man, I was, I was changed by my relationship with Scott. And, and, I, and I saw a man who valued tolerance and we were able to have deep conversations as we pressed into uh, the gospel together. And uh, one day he told me, you know, my mom, I'm telling my mom and and, and sister about our church, and they're like, why are you going to church? They're up here in New England. They're like, why are you going to church? Like, we thought you knew better than that. You know, he's like, Mom, you don't understand. This community is tolerant and loving. Now, I talked about the exclusive claims of Jesus. He, he saw in us a classical tolerance, a persuasive tolerance, a third path, um, and was, was convinced of the value of our community. Um, Scott uh, contracted some esophagus issues, and uh, unfortunately, he wasn't able to eat. And so the, uh, the flap down here in his esophagus had been disintegrated by all the chemo. And so he had to do a, a feeding tube, and he didn't really want to do that. He was become, had become a rail of a man. Um, it was laborious just to get breaths out of his chest. And so uh, he was dying. And uh, so I went to visit him uh, in the Christopher House, uh, a hospice um, that, where people go, go to die. And uh, so I showed up, and I saw him, and I pulled up a chair next to his bed. What a privilege to be there in the dying hours of a man's life. You know, dying used to be a very spiritual thing, but now it's been medicalized. Pastors and Christians used to attend the deathbed. Now it's doctors and nurses. Uh, so I had the privilege of being there, and uh, we began to talk about life. And, and I, I, you know, I said, so tell, tell me about some of the greatest times in your life, Scott. And when he began to relive some of these moments, he, he said, you know, my philo life philosophy was uh, act like you belong. And so he, acting like you belong, you know those kind of people, maybe like a Ferris Bueller kind of dating myself, but, you know, kind of, uh, they just kind of like act like it, and they get into all these crazy places, right? And so he had gotten onto the USS Constitution by a private ferry with a bunch of important politicians. He had met an African chancellor in the uh, green room of the Today Show uh, by just acting like he belongs. Um, he, what else, he got into the White House for a special tour, just acting like he belongs. And so we laughed, you know, talked about some of the great concerts he'd slipped into. I mean, this guy had seen a lot of life. In fact, he told me at one point, 
He said, I'm ready to die, Jonathan. I, I've lived more in 50, 51 years than most people do their whole lives. And so we had a great conversation. I was trying to listen to him and understand kind of his life. And, and then I said, well, how do you, how do you think you're going to meet Jesus? Scott, and he said, well, I guess I'll just keep acting like I belong. And I said, well, Scott, you know, unfortunately, that doesn't work with God. Because God's holy, perfect. And you can't fake God out. And so acting like you belong, you can never act good enough for a perfectly good God. And so in fact, um, that's the whole thing with Jesus that we've talked about, that your hope of Christ and of heaven is that Jesus acted perfectly so you can belong to the perfect affection and approval and love of the Father. So act like you belong doesn't work with Jesus, but Jesus acted so you can belong to a loving Heavenly Father. He kind of closed his eyes and, and just nodded and, and kind of eked out a, a faint yes. Five days later, he died. The long road of evangelism that's not impersonal but personal, that's not intolerant but persuasively tolerant. So I hope you can kind of just see, trying to peek back, there are a lot of defeaters. These people, the stories I'm sharing, would have never, would have never turned to Jesus were it not for a personal, loving, tolerant, Christ-centered community. Oh, that we would kind of deconstruct these defeaters in our lives, squeeze out evangelistic wisdom and become the kind of patient, discerning, uh, loving people that we see. Uh, John and Ashley um, entered our church probably a year and a half ago. Uh, seeking John was a self-proclaimed uh, atheist. He was engaged to Ashley. Ashley was spiritually curious because of someone in our church. They started coming on Sundays faithfully to hear the gospel preached. And uh, to can just consider, and John he was just kind of doing his fiance, you know, a favor, like just showing up, trying to be the, the good guy. He actually had a bum, bum leg, so he couldn't do soccer on Sunday morning. So talk about the providence of God. Um, <laughs> Anyway, so um, God will hurt you to heal you, right? Um, so here they are. We're, we're getting to know them, and uh, they're wrestling through kind of the claims of Christ and the supernatural and all this stuff, lots of conversations. Meet them for lunch. Talk to them after service. They're kind of connected to a, a missional community. Uh, we call it the city group, but got to know some of those people. So one day I, I want to go out and talk to them, so we have lunch and just kind of following up, continuing the conversation. And and they, they're getting married, but Ashley is pulling away towards Christ. And John is kind of out there in atheism land. And so uh, I'm kind of perplexed because I know it's inevitable they're going to ask me to marry them. So that's going to be an interesting issue. And then where are they spiritually? And so I'm asking, uh, and they say, you know, you know, would you consider marrying us? And I said, well, there's a more important conver conversation we need to have about Jesus. Uh, before It would be an honor to marry you, but can we have this more important conversation? Um, and so they, they said, yeah, and, and so we began to climb into a gospel conversation about the person and work of Jesus. And um, Ashley asked some really good questions, and then John said, you know, I just, I want to be more open-minded. You know, I, I value, like, other philosophies and other religions, and so I just, you know, I, I just want to be more open-minded. You know, I don't want to miss out on the value of other things. And I said, you know, John, that's great. Uh, I try to be as open-minded as I can. I think there are a lot of truths in other religions. I think there are a lot of values and other kind of philosophical 
systems. And, and you've probably heard me talk about that on Sundays as I quote from scientists who don't know Jesus and things like that. Like, I think you're right to to want to gather as much wisdom about life from as many places as possible. But, you know, I find it interesting. Like, as far as I know, um, you're, you're marrying one person, right? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm marrying her. You know, and he's like, yeah, absolutely. And uh, so, it, John, it sounds like you've been awfully narrow-minded. As far as I know, there's not any other people. It sounds like you're being awfully narrow-minded uh, about Ashley here, that uh, there's no other ladies in the closet. No, no, no other ladies in the closet. Yeah, be, be narrow-minded. Wait, be narrow Oh. And I said, John, well, you know, if you're going to be narrow-minded about your spouse, I would say it'd be even more important to be narrow-minded about the God of your universe and what gives you fulfillment and purpose and meaning in life. And so I just want to encourage you to, you know, this conversation we're having today, think about um, God and to kind of be narrow-minded and, 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 and narrow down the options. And may consider this most, this is the most important question of your life, John. And so I would encourage you to, to figure it out. Talk with Ashley. You guys keep chewing on it and narrow it down. He kind of just had this look on his face like, man, I hadn't heard that one before. Um, I got a text yesterday after we arrived. said, um, Ashley's given her life to Christ. John's right behind her. And uh, we're going we're gonna to marry him soon. Praise the Lord. What a privilege to be there in that moment. Now, did that happen by dropping a tract, name-dropping Jesus, checking a list? No, it comes from the long road of awkward conversations, loving people, being really inefficient when I could do a lot of other stuff. Maybe do a, write, preach a little better sermon, you know, could have spent another five hours on a sermon instead of hanging out with them, talking about the gospel. Um, love is inefficient. Uh, so hopefully you kind of get the sense here, right, that there are defeaters, us, and there are defeaters, what we believe, that keep us from a, a discerning, culturally discerning, winsome articulation of the gospel. And so in this first talk, I'm just trying to kind of make the case, diagnose the problem for our unbelievable evangelism. In the next talk, we'll talk about, okay, how do we respond as church planners, as, as leaders, as, uh, as you know, disciples of Jesus? How do we respond to these defeaters? I've kind of tipped my hand a little bit. It has something to do with the gospel. It has something to do with Jesus. Um, and then in the third talk, we'll talk about a constructive way forward. Like, do we really have to memorize all that stuff? Is there a way to share the gospel that makes the good news of the gospel powerful and the bad news of people's lives that, that, uh, that is accessible, that is uh, natural, that is uh, full of grace and full of truth? Right? So kind of a theoretical first talk, hopefully a really warm pastoral second talk, and then a really practical third talk. So hopefully we've set the table as we think about unbelievable evangelism.